does me. Um, so this morning, I, I have come to understand, I don't know about you, I've come to understand that faith, this word, faith, is required. So I really wanted, through this series, to help us answer the question, well then what exactly is it? Because it seems so mystical to me, this word faith. And so if you, I mean, a lot of people have sung about it. Shout me some names of people who have sung about faith. Anybody? Who has sung a song about faith? If you grew up in the 80s and you don't answer that, I'm going to be questioning whether you really ever grew up. George Michael did, didn't he? He sung about faith. I also know that Michael Jackson sang about faith, and Mandy Moore sang about faith, and Joe Cocker sang about faith, and I could go on and, oh, 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 at least I forget, um, Bon Jovi sang about faith. We have lots of people who talk about faith and sing about faith, but we really want to talk about this thing called authentic faith. A real faith and a genuine faith. And here's why I want to talk about that. Because as I have read through the New Covenant, and you come to somebody like James, who was the brother of Jesus, James had a lot to say about faith. And you know what James said? James said there is a kind of faith that is dead. A dead faith. In other words, James was saying that kind of faith is useless. It does you no good at all. And then I start thinking out of fear, I start thinking, oh my goodness, what if I invest my entire life and that's the kind of faith I have, a dead, what if I end up with a dead faith? That was scary to me, is scary to me. And then James goes on, this same guy, brother of Jesus, he goes on and James talks about another kind of faith, and we'll give this one a faith, kind of it's a supernatural faith. He explains it as kind of a demonic, paranormal faith, that the whole paranormal world understands, but yet he says this kind of demonic, paranormal faith is also useless. And I think to myself, well, I don't want to end up with a faith that just says, yes, I believe some historical facts, but it does me no good eternally or in my life today. And that's what he would describe as a faith that the demons have. Interesting. And I think to myself, I don't want to go through my whole life and end up with that kind of faith that is useless, he describes. But then it gets a little scarier because then Paul in the New Covenant, he talks about a kind of faith and he labels it as a worthless faith. Again, Paul would say that that is useless. It does you no good. It is of no use to you at all. You might as well not have it. And I think to myself, I don't want to go living my whole life trying to do the right thing and following Jesus, trying to, but then I end up with something that Paul describes as a worthless faith that does me no good now or in eternity. I don't want to end up with that. And then it gets a little scarier because Jesus himself then talks about a kind of faith that is what I think we could describe as a 
temporary faith. A faith that says you believe something for a little while, but then something happens and you fall away and you don't believe that anymore. And Jesus describes that as a useless faith. Now, the others are scary enough. But when it comes from the words of Jesus, I I get even a little more frightened as I think I don't want to invest and live and spend my entire life building something up that ultimately Jesus would describe as a temporary useless faith. So since authentic faith is required, we see it. We see the best friend of Jesus. His name was John. One of the best friends. His name was John. And when John writes a letter, he, he includes some information in there. And he describes in 1 John chapter 5. I don't have it on the screen for you. But he describes in 1 John chapter 5, he describes that everyone who believes, and that's where this word faith comes in, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, they have become a child of God. But then we have to remember the demons also believe that. And they have a worthless, useless faith. So it gets a little confusing. And then you have Jesus who describes himself that faith is required. And we've read that very famous passage, John 3.16. You see people holding signs at the football games. John 3.16 describes how you have to have this faith in a very specific person, Jesus. He says it's required. We must have it. And he talks again about that in verse 36, that this is required. An authentic faith in Jesus is required. So I think that becomes a better question. What exactly is this mystical thing called an authentic faith? Because I really need to know for myself, and I hope that you want to know, because if you're anything like me, you don't want to end up with what the New Covenant describes as a useless, worthless faith. I grew up going to church. My parents took me there all the time. I mostly enjoyed it. But this whole church thing, I had many things that I was taught, but there were some things I just kind of picked up that I wasn't necessarily taught. And one of those things that I picked up that nobody really taught me or said this, this was just the way I envisioned it, is that we must seek God And then we have to work hard our lives, whole lives, to keep God. We have to seek Him and we have to keep Him. That's something I grew up with and that's something I believe that I don't think is the truth. But maybe maybe you're not worried about keeping God. Because maybe you came to the point where you realize the new covenant doesn't teach us that we have to keep God. The new covenant teaches us that He does all the keeping. He does all the holding. He keeps us. We come to him, he keeps us. We don't have to, but sometimes we are seeking a feeling about God. Sometimes in the church world, we have faith in 
a feeling. We kind of associate our faith in God with a feeling we have about God. And sometimes we begin looking for a church, a church family, that can give me some way, sometimes through the music, sometimes through the teaching, but looking for a church that can give me a special kind of feeling about God, where the hair stands up on your arms, and you're like, wow, I really felt that. And we start looking for that feeling. And when we find it, we would say that's authentic. I think the New Covenant would have some things to say for us about what authentic faith really is. Not a feeling, not something that we can attain on our own. We're going to look at that through this series. But to help us understand this morning, our starting place of where is, what is this thing called authentic faith, today we're going to look way back at the front end of this, how God got it all started, and then we're going to look at his plan, how how he wants to help us uh, understand his plan and the process and all of this. And I think he gives us a lot of those hints, all those clues we need, especially for this morning. We get those out of his word, out of scriptures, out of those historical documents that were inspired by God, not just historical documents, inspired by God. So let's look at what... God did then to see if we can help understand a little bit about how God moves and what he's doing and what all that means for us today, this very moment. So here's the context that we're going to go with. Number one, we realize, and this is what we teach and we understand from Scripture, that God knows all. God is all-knowing. We also understand through Scripture that God is all-powerful, nothing that God cannot do. We also understand somehow, we can't really understand this, but somehow we, we can see that God is ever-present. So he knows everything, he has all the power that, that there is, and he's also everywhere, God himself everywhere, ever-present. We're also taught this in the, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that God does not change. The fancy word for that is immutable. He does not change. He's not one way today, another way tomorrow. God is constant. He's steady. Because perfection, absolute perfection, does not change. It can't get more perfect. God doesn't change. Now that's what God tells us about himself. That this God that I just described to you, decided to create a world and to put some people on it, his prize creation, people. Now, because God is all-knowing, absolutely everything, he was well aware. God knows what's coming. He not only knows what has happened and what is happening now, he knows what is coming. Because he's all-knowing from all of those perspectives, he knew how this was all going to play out. Before he created anything, he already knew how the entire thing was going to play out. He knew that his creation, man, was going to rebel against him. He knew it. He knew that was going to happen. So from the very beginning, he had a plan to rescue his creation. Even before the beginning, he knew he was going to rescue his creation. So here we go. God created. McKinley's going to get us started here on the screen. There we go. Power button. 
God started it all. He started it with creation, knowing full well what was going to happen. And who did, uh, what person did he create first? He created Adam. There we go. There we have Adam. Adam was given one single rule in the garden that, that was perfect. Everything was perfect. One single rule. And guess what? He did exactly what you and I would have done. He blew it. So there we go. Adam blew it. He didn't get three X's. This is not family feud. <laughs> one is all it took. He blew it. And from that moment on, all of creation was broken. Most of creation begins to make really horrible. All of creation had blown it, but most of creation after Adam, for the next nine generations, began to make some really horrific decisions. Horrible, horrible decisions for themselves and for all of humanity. Things got so bad that God said, okay, now is the point that I'm going to give us a fresh start. I'm going to start over. And he starts over with someone named Noah. And so Noah is his start over. He knew it was coming. Not a shock, not a surprise. He picks Noah to be a major participant in God's plan. So we are on God's plan. From the very beginning of creation, you see that over there? All, this is all part of God's plan. Our decisions aren't his plan. We make those. But right there, look at that. Okay, so he starts over. That's what he does. Um, after Noah, he makes a covenant with Noah. After that, um, about 10 generations later, after Noah, we run into a guy named Abram. Um, there he is right there. You will see me, hear me today referred to him as Abram, sometimes as Abraham. God eventually changes Abram's name to Abraham. So I will use it interchangeably today, depending on what my memory does. <laughs> so Abraham, Abram. Um, God looked and he said, okay, now's the right time. This is the time for this plan, this particular part of the plan to move forward. And he had chosen Abraham. Um, there are many names now that follow Abraham. We don't have the time or the space here to list all of those names uh, in God's plan leading up. But there are many names, and they all lead to one very specific point in history. It is God's plan to get us out of the mess. And there you see. That doorway, that passageway out of all the mess that was created here, God has a plan, and you see it right there. The plan is Jesus. It is not a plan that he said, oh my goodness, look what's happened to creation. I better figure something out fast. Now, he knew this from the very beginning. Before the beginning, Jesus was the plan. He knew how this was all going to play out, and he knew that he was going to need Jesus, and that's how he was going to do it. He knew and everything over here leads to this one spot right here, to Jesus. And we are told to get from here, which we are, to over here, Jesus, this one special word is required. And that word is faith. So let's look at how we're going to start over here with, with, with Abraham, with Abram. And we're going to see how this whole thing of faith 
begins to develop and what that means for us today. And this whole series is going to be another piece of the puzzle, another piece of the puzzle today and the next three weeks. We're going to start right now in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at the story of Abram, uh, and we're going to look at verse 1. The Bible says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, he says, leave them all behind, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, Abram at this point is about 75 years old, so that doesn't sound like a really great time to be taking a cross-country, another country, another country, multiple country crossing journey at the age of 75. And to do that pretty much just with your own household, leaving everybody behind. Doesn't sound like a great time, but that's what God told him to do at his ripe old age of Abram at 75 years old. And here's what God says to him. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. Pause there for a moment. Now, God didn't look through the earth and say, I'm looking for the sharpest, the best, the, most, uh, the, the highest character and integrity person I can find, and I'm going to initiate my plan with them. No, that's not what he did. He kind of did that with Noah. That's not what he really did with Abram. Abram, he just simply said, you're it. Abram did not deserve that phrase when God said, I will make you into a great nation. Abram's like, huh? I'm just a guy. And he was just a guy, 75-year-old guy. He didn't deserve it. He had done nothing really to earn that. God just kind of said, this is how it's going to go. I'll make you into a great nation. Now, this is going to be interesting because Abram, at 75 years old, if he's going to be a great nation, that means there needs to be a lot of children, a lot of people. And at this point, at 75 years old, Abram has zero children, not even a bun in the oven. Zero. I mean, as far as I know, they didn't even have any dough on the countertop working. Nothing. So if this is going to happen, Abram's thinking, I'm 75 years old. We better hurry. It goes on. He says, I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. Pause again. Abram did not deserve this. He didn't do anything to deserve that. God is just simply saying, there you go. It's God's plan. That's the only thing you can say about it. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't this really superhero kind of God follower. No, God just said, here it is. You didn't deserve it. This is what's going to happen. It's just God's plan. He goes on, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. Pause there. Abraham did not deserve that. All you can say about it is it was just God's plan. Abraham didn't earn it, didn't work for it, didn't deserve it. He said, that's just the plan. And then he goes on. This is a big one. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abram. Again, that's a big statement. That every single family on the entire earth for all time is going to be blessed somehow by Abraham. He did not deserve that. He did not earn that. Everyone is going to be blessed because of you, Abraham. Something about you, something about your life. Everyone, all of these verses are significant. They all have impact on our history and even even within our own government today. They have impact. But 
this last verse, though, we don't have time to unpack those others and the significance, but this last one, all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. It was just part of God's plan. Abram did not deserve that. But that last verse, we in this room today, and you, our family online, today we benefit from that verse. All the families of the earth, including us today, will be blessed through you, Abram. And we know, I don't know if Abram understood the significance of that. But as we can track God's working through history, we know that that was God himself telling Abram, I promise Abram to bring myself, God, God himself, to this creation itself in the form of Jesus. I'm going to bring it to you through your family tree, Abram. That was huge. Great promises. Amazing promises from God. Let's now see what Abram had to do to deserve or earn or work for those promises. And this is what we're going to find out. This is so amazing. God required nothing from Abram except for Abram to embrace God and to believe, to trust that God would keep his word. That's it. It wasn't because Abram was so smart or so great, a wonderful leader, a great, uh, a, a great man to build a nation. None of those things. All that was required was for him to embrace God and believe and trust that God was going to keep his word. And this is the seed of this thing we called authentic faith. God also, through this process, promises Abram that not only is he going to build a nation, but he's going to give his descendants, this nation, a very specific piece of real estate for this nation to have as their own. And it is, it is within this real estate that God is going to send this nation and that God is going to send himself in the form of Jesus and going to play out this entire redemption story for his entire creation all on this specific, within this specific piece of real estate. And everything we've just described, we can just say it's all grace. Because Abraham did not deserve anything that God said that he was going to be doing. He didn't deserve it. And Abraham could not work for it and say, okay, you're going to do it, great. So now I'm going to do better and I'm going to deserve what you gave me. He never deserved it. He couldn't earn it. He couldn't work for it. It's all grace. God just said, here you go. This is what I'm going to do. I'm letting you know. And so Abraham takes all of this information, all these promises, and God lets him just kind of live with it for a little while. Live with it. 
One year goes by. Nothing yet. No changes yet. Just a year older. Still waiting over here, God. Still waiting. Two years go by. Three years. Abram, still waiting. Four years go by. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years pass. And now he's getting really old. He's like, God, I, I don't know if you're aware. I know you're all knowing, but did this slip through the cracks? I am now a really old man. Ten years since you said all of this, and nothing's happened but me getting slower and older and older and older. Okay, God, this is getting a little ridiculous now that I'm thinking about it. A nation? I don't even have a son, a child. Sometime around this time, about 10 years after God made those promises to Abram, God and Abram have another encounter, and it's described for us in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 8, but Abram replied, he's talking to God here, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure? He states it so confidently, O sovereign Lord, and then he gets real mousy, but I don't know. You are, maybe, I hope you are, but how can I be sure that I will actually possess this, everything that you've said, this land and this, this land, how can I be sure, because I'm, yeah, I'm getting old and I'm beginning to die, how, how can I be sure? Verse 9, the Lord told him, okay, I'll show you how, bring me, gives him a grocery list, three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old Ram, a turtle dove, and let's see, a young pigeon. God says, okay, Abram, here's your part. Do this. Basically, just bring it all to me. That's what you need to do. Abram, bring it all to me. Here's the list. Just bring it all to me. So Abram presented all these to him, and he killed them. God had instructed, did what God said. This was going to be what we call a blood sacrifice. This is going to be a blood covenant, not just a sacrifice, but a covenant, a blood covenant. And this was a big deal. When a covenant involved the shedding of blood, this was a big deal. This was an agreement, a legal agreement, a legal arrangement. It was a promise, a covenant that would involve death and would involve a blood sacrifice meant this was very, very, very important. And so according to the directions, it says this, then he cut each animal down the middle. I always imagine he just took them right in the middle, kind of like a bad Halloween movie. But that's not how it happens. They took them down the middle this way. This was going to be a great amount of blood that's involved. It's not just a blood sacrifice. This is a bloody sacrifice. Cut long ways into two halves down the middle. And it says he laid the halves side by side. He did how he did, uh, however, he did not cut the birds in half. That was by the directions of God. So he cut these things long ways 
Today, if you were to get a three-year-old heifer, you're going to find one that weighs somewhere between 1,100 and 1,200 pounds. I don't know how old the heifers are you wrote, Justin, but that sounds big to me. I don't know about ancient heifers, don't know a lot about heifers, period. But ancient heifers, let's just say they're probably a little bit smaller. Everything was smaller back then, you know, so... People were smaller. The heifers were probably smaller too. Still, if it's anywhere near 1,100, 1,200 pounds, a three it's going to be big. It's going to be huge. I can't imagine the mess that cutting one long ways in half, the mess, the blood, the, the grossness that this is going to create. I can't imagine that. But so far, this is all that God has asked. Abram to do. Just bring it, cut it. That's it. That's all that God has asked from Abram. He goes on, verse 11. So some vultures swoop down to eat the carcasses. And here's the problem here. You know, I, I imagine this is taking some time. Maybe not so much cutting in half these little animals. But let's say you cut some in half. It's going to take some time when you're working on that, that heifer. He probably didn't start there. He's like, I'm dreading that. He gets some cut. And by the time he gets some cut and is working over here on the heifer, these things, I don't know how long they've been laying there, but he's working. It's a bloody mess. And the vultures see, and they have great ample opportunity because it's not like he's using a little scalpel that you use in your biology lab to dissect the frog. I don't know how he's whacking these things in two. But there's time for those vultures to say, dinner is served. And they start swooping away. And it says, but Abram chased him away. Can you imagine this? I can't imagine the anxiety here. God has spoken to him and said, here's what I want you to do. And Abram's busy. He's cutting. He doesn't have the chainsaw. That would be handy. He should have invented that, but he didn't. So he's cutting them, however, with whatever. And he's looking and he's working, he's already been over there, and they start to swoop, and he's thinking, I've got a problem here. Those stupid birds are going to mess this thing up. God has told me to do this, and they are going to mess this thing up. I've got a problem. God, I don't know where you are at the moment, but I've got a problem here I'm trying to deal with. And he grabs the big fly swatter, and he's trying to swat the vultures away from the sacrifice so he doesn't get in trouble with God. God, where are you? I better step up and handle this for you. And now the sun begins to set. This was taking a while. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. It's as if God is saying, I, I don't really need your help, Abram. I see what's going on. I don't need your help. Everything's going okay. This is not up to you, Abram. This, in fact, is not your problem, Abram. He, God may have used the Jedi mind trick on him. Abram, take a nap. Take a chill pill. And he fell asleep. And it says, and a terrifying darkness came down over him. And now God speaks to Abram. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure 
that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. And by the way, they were. His descendants, this nation that God promised him, was enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. And then God says, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And God did with 10 horrible plagues. And God then says, and in the end, they will come away, the nation, this nation, your descendants will come away with great wealth. And they did. You may not be aware of this, but as they were leaving Egypt after the 10 plagues, the Egyptians went to their homes and they took out all of this gold and silver and jewels and they loaded up the wagons of the Israelites, this nation. They loaded up their wagons with the precious metals, jewels, gold, silver, and all that stuff. They took it from their own homes and loaded, their wa- loaded onto the Israelites' wagons and they left. Exactly what God said happened But he's letting Abraham know it before those people ever, ever existed. Before Abraham even has his first child. Verse 15. As for you, Abram, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And that did happen. Abram lived to be 175 years old. It happened just like God said. Verse 16. And four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. And it all happened exactly like God told Abram it would happen. So God says this is all coming. But now we're back to the here and now with Abram. Now We've got Abram over here taking a chill pill. And we've got this bloody mess of these sacrifices all cut in half, laid out in half. They've been sacrificed. And so we're doing our best. We're going to put a little picture up here on the screen. McKinley's going to. This is, okay, so here we have the set. We've got the animals cut in half, laid in the half long ways off to the side. All right? They've been sacrificed. Bodies right down the middle. It was a bloody mess. That's why we have the next picture here because we're just going to let this next one represent the mess, the bloody mess that was created from the sacrifices. Now everything is ready for Abram. Everything is ready. And this is how the action takes place. Verse 17, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch. I just want to hit pause for a moment, and I just want to say, this is pretty cool. I don't know what you're going to do with this. I just want to kind of just toss this out and just throw it out, and we're going to keep moving. I want to toss this out, and I want to let you know that Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is God, flesh and blood, God, Jesus is called the light of the world. And here we see something going on here with some light, some bright light here, and it's God. 
I don't know what you're going to do with what I just said. I'm just throwing it out. Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Abram's off to the side somewhere. He's watching all of this happen. God, what is about to happen and what is happening right now, God is doing alone. Doesn't need Abram. Abram is not included in the action. Usually, when there was a covenant that was being made, there were at least two people involved in the covenant. In the ceremony, both people were involved in the sacrifice. Both people were involved in the ceremony of making the covenant. But in this scenario, it is a covenant. It is a blood covenant. And God is the only one making the covenant. Abram was not needed. Abraham had no part of the covenant to keep. No part to keep. Abram was making no promises to God. Only God was making the promises to Abram. It was all on God, not Abram. Abram, the verse says, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. Now, this is how a covenant was cut historically. So we take historical information and we put it in the context of this scripture and we can see what was happening. To cut a covenant was a bloody, bloody mess. And the covenant would leave a bloody trail, a footpath, a trail of feet and footprints. And that trail would make a figure eight. That's what this next one is about. So there we have drawn for you the path. That is where the way a person would walk around the sacrifice and it would be a figure eight. See how that would happen? And the, as they began to walk through there, they left a bloody trail in the form of that figure eight. That's what was going on. But the thing is, God was doing it himself. When two people make a covenant, they would cut those animals long way in half, they would lay them out, and they would walk between them. Both people would walk between them, not together, arm in arm, they would separately, but at the same time. They would be at different spots, but they would be making the figure eight together. Both people. And they would say something like this, historically. They would say, God, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I don't keep my part of this covenant? God, what has happened to these animals, this bloody mess, May that happen to me if I don't keep my part of this covenant. And each participating in the covenant, each one had a part that they had to keep. Each one was making a commitment to the bloody death that they would keep their commitment, their part of the covenant. And in this case, this was unheard of. God was doing this alone. God alone made the promises. There was nothing about the outcome of this covenant that was dependent upon Abram. It was all dependent upon God and God alone. God made the promise. God would do the work to see that covenant fulfilled. Abraham had to simply 
embrace God and just simply believe and trust that God was going to do what God said he would do. Verse 18, so the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and he said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. So God said, here it is. This is the land. Here are the boundaries. That is yours. I'm giving it to y'all. And God keeps his covenant. In this case, he made the covenant. Abram just needed to believe. Just needed to have that authentic faith that says, I trust you, God. I don't deserve this. I trust you, though, to keep your covenant. I trust you to do what you say. To keep this covenant that you've made, I trust you to do that. That, my friends, is a step toward authentic faith. Abram in that moment is believing and learning to believe. And he's going to go on and learn some more. We're going to talk about that. He's learning to believe. That God is who he says he is and he will do what he says that he will do. My friends, God has a plan. Not just for Abram. He did have a plan for Abram. But God had a plan for a nation. But God didn't just have a plan for a nation. God had a plan to offer something to the entire world, every soul, every person born, to offer them something, a blessing, he told Abram, a blessing that they don't deserve. And it's all God's plan. And it is his and his alone to keep it is up to him to keep it. It is not up to me. And God initiated this plan and this covenant. He initiated it with Abram. And I want you to know this. God initiates a covenant, a, another plan with you. God initiated and God will keep it. Our God, from the beginning of time, knew what was going to be required. And he knew the struggles of Adam that were to come. Before creation, God knew every struggle, every abuse, everything that you would be involved in in your life. God knew and he allowed you and me to be created anyway. He knew. He knew before you were involved in that, that you would need to be redeemed and rescued. He knew that about me. Before he ever created me, he knew how broken Harley was going to be. And he knew exactly what I was going to need. Not another list of steps. Not a better religion. He knew that I was going to need a Savior, a Redeemer, a Messiah. And that was his plan. 
before he ever created me, before he ever created you. He planned to die. God came and rescued us before we were here. Before we ever would know or understand that we needed rescuing. Hey, when we were in the pinnacle of our sin, we didn't need a Savior. We needed that next big thing. We didn't need God. But yet, God knew before that, when we didn't even have an awareness of Him, that we needed a Savior. And God rescued us before we knew we needed to be rescued. And Paul puts it in such amazing language when the Holy Spirit encouraged him to write this, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time according to God's plan. Way back here at the beginning of time, he already knew what the right time would be. And that's the exact moment he said, here we go. We're going down. At just the right time. And he died for us sinners. It was a plan to give us what we don't deserve. What we can't work for. What we will never be able to earn. It is given to us. It is grace alone. And authentic faith. Not a worthless faith. Not a useless faith. Not a temporary faith. Not a faith that is looking for a feeling or for the hairs on my arm to stand up. No, 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 no. An authentic faith says, okay, God, I'm with you. Okay. God, I'm with you. It is not an emotional decision. You might get emotional. I don't know. But it is not a decision which foundation is emotion. It's a decision that says, okay, God, I'm with you. This is your plan, not my plan. It is up to you for you to work this plan out because it's not my plan. It's your plan. This whole salvation thing is yours. And I'm with you. Your grace is a gift to me. I don't deserve it. Your plan requires God something for you to do, not for me. Your plan requires something that only you can do. Because I can't be good enough to ever earn my place in your kingdom. I can't be good enough to ever work my way into your presence. I will never be good enough. So it is up to you, not me. And, God, I believe that you have it under control. I'm getting ready, not just yet, but I'm getting ready to put our bottom line statement on the screen. McKinley will do it in just a moment, just not yet. But if you're someone who wants to remember something out of today, I encourage you, if you can't do it with your head, which I couldn't, 
then I would encourage you to use your phone and take a picture of this screen over here in just a moment because that screen is going to have our bottom line. And I want you to remember this because it is part of this big key of what is authentic faith, not the useless mess that we talked about in the beginning. Authentic faith. Not temporary, not worthless, not useless. Authentic. And if you want to remember that, and some of you have a brilliant mind, and you'll be able to just remember it, and that's great. But if you're like me, take a picture of this. Here it is. Here's the bottom line. Authentic faith says, God has a plan for me that I don't deserve. I can't earn, and it depends only upon him. It's a plan of grace. I want to read it again. God has a plan for me that I don't deserve, and I can't earn, and it depends only upon him. It is a plan of grace. And here's what I want to encourage you and challenge you with today as we end. Get to know that plan. Get to know that plan of grace. And I'm going to encourage you not to start in the old covenant. We're going to give you a little tour of the life of Abraham, but don't start there. I want you to start in the new covenant because that's God's plan today. Will you begin to discover that in the new covenant? And I'll be honest with you. I don't care where you begin. I would give you one single hint. Don't begin with the last book. You'll get confused. But anywhere else in the new covenant, I don't care where you begin. Just begin. Begin to get familiar with that plan of grace that he says, I'm doing all the work. I'm inviting you on the journey. All you have to do is embrace. 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 We desire that you have an authentic faith. We don't want you to come to the end of a day or the end of a week or the end of your life with something that the brother of Jesus described as useless faith, as a dead faith. We don't want you to end up there. We don't want you to end up with a useless faith, a dead faith, a demonic faith. Uh, demonic faith. We don't want that. And this is the starting place for an authentic faith. And we want to help you get there. Before I close, someone here this morning may be ready to get there right now. And here's what you need to simply do. If you're saying, yes, Jesus, you died for me. You were the blood sacrifice for me. And at this moment, I don't understand it all, but I know this. You did that for me. And I, at this moment, want to say, you paid a price. Since a price was paid, you made a purchase. And I want to say, Jesus, that purchase was my life. You bought me. And I say to you, Jesus, you have me, you own me, I'm yours. And I don't understand how that plays out for the rest of my life, but I want to declare this right now. If this is you, is this your heart? I declare this right now. Jesus, you own my life. I'm yours. And if that's you, please, I ask you, mark the back of your connection card. Before you turn in that paper one and before you hit submit on your card, mark it where it says, I'm making Jesus the boss of my life today. And here's why. I want to give you some information to help you understand what that means and to help you get a start in following Jesus. 
there's another type of person here today. There's another type of person who may not be ready yet and saying, okay, okay, Harley, I listen, I'm hearing, I'm taking it in, but I'm not ready yet. And I want to say to you, okay, just keep coming. Don't stop. Don't stop. Because if you stop, you become exactly what Jesus called that temporary worthless faith. Don't stop. Keep investigating. Continue. You just keep showing up every Sunday. I would even say get in a small group, even if you're not following Jesus yet. Go ahead. Get in a small group too. Keep following. Keep showing up here on Sundays. We're going to keep opening the Word and teaching and loving and growing and stretching. We're going to keep doing it. You just keep showing up and God's going to begin to answer those questions and put them together. Keep coming. There's another type of person here today. It's the person who says, Harley, I appreciate what you've said. And I came to the place in my life at some point before this, maybe last week, maybe last year, maybe a decade ago, but I came to the point where I said, yes, Jesus, you can have my life and I'm all yours. And I have that authentic faith and I am confirmed. I know, I know, I know that he owns my life. I still fall and I still fail. But he helps me get back up. He cleans me off and he puts me back out there again. I know, I know. I'm his, I know. And here's my challenge to you. You who know, I ask this. God has given you the assignment. And if you didn't know it, then he's giving it to you right now. Your life assignment is to make sure as many people around you in your family, at your work, students at your school, to make sure they know too. And he has placed you in a specific place at a specific time. And I would even say in a specific church for you to change the lives, not us doing the changing, but the changing happens when we help someone else encounter the blood covenant of Jesus. And now he has you here to say, I want you to be a part of other people who are enslaved to the world to become a bondservant of Christ. And that's why you're here. And I want you to know this right now. This room that we meet in, this is not a sanctuary. They used to make pipes here. And then they sold cars and worked on them here. A lot of money has gone through this building. This is not a sanctuary. It's an old grungy shop with grease stains on the floor. But this old grungy shop with grease stains on the floor and these rooms out here that have been flooded and, and covered with nasty mess and now cleaned up, perfectly cleaned up and sanitary, but this whole facility is just simply here as a tool for somehow God to use you to impact this world. 
For some of you, that tool is simply to see that person that you have been trying to help get one step closer to Jesus for them just to sit beside you on a Sunday. For some of you, that tool called a building is there for you to have somebody sitting beside you in a small group. And for some of you, God is going to launch something that's going to change your life and the lives of other people. But I don't know what God's plan is. That's, what, that's, that's between you and God. We're just here to simply say, go do what God said to do and see lives changed. Let's pray. God, when I was utterly helpless, you came at just the right time and you died. You died for people just like me and myself who had it all wrong and they were living for themselves like I was living for myself. And you died and I didn't deserve it. And God, I cannot earn it. I've said a whole lot of things in my life about things I want to do for you, God, and I want to do this, I want to do that. But God, the whole time, you were just simply saying, give me your life. I want your life, not your to-do list. And God, I pray there's someone here right now, this very moment, that's saying, Jesus, you have my life. You have my heart. You have my all. And an authentic faith says, God, you have a plan for me that I don't deserve. And God, I can never earn it, and I'll never be able to work enough for it. And it depends only upon you. And it is your plan of grace. And I just simply say, God, do what you need to do. I'm with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Make it so, Jesus. Amen.